RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Renita Malhotra Hora. Well, U.S. stocks were little changed after another volatile day. Goldman Sachs reports strong earnings, but Google disappoints. And the St. Louis Fed Governor Bullard calls for a delay in the ending of QE. Apple's new iPad and computer line disappoint technical gurus and investors alike. We wind down the week by talking about the global bond market, the Hong Kong Open, and two twin Apple product debuts, the new iPad in the U.S. and also the iPhone 6 in mainland retail stores. Our guests this morning include Donald Amstad of Aberdeen Asset Management, Danny Hicks of the AFP, and from Taiwan, Tracy Tsai, a Garter analyst. My co-host this morning is Richard Harris of Port Shelter Investment Management. Good morning, Richard. Good morning. Yet another Apple launch. Yet another Apple launch, and don't we look forward to them all. <laughs> okay, let's take a look at today's top stories. Wall Street stocks finished little changed after a choppy session. Fears about the faltering European economy initially dragged the market it down before the strong weekly U.S. jobs data pulled it back up. The Dow lost 24 points to finish at 16,117. The S&P 500 was flat at 1,862 and the Nasdaq gained 0.1% to close at 4,217. If you step back and really take a look at the last three or four weeks, whatever fear of deflation or growth has set into the markets is something that we've actually known about. So the question is, why the volatility? Here's Chris Heisey, the chief investment officer of U.S. Trust. We hit October. You can't buy back stock if you're a corporation during earnings season. You have to wait. So the buying power in the market kind of goes away a little bit. You don't get a lot of asset allocation going on in October from the pension funds to the endowments to the long-term asset allocators. So that's been pulled away. And then all of a sudden the triggers hit because oil falls uh, you know, below $85 a barrel. And the next thing you know, the quantitative fund managers out there in the hedge fund world, there are other trigger hits because 2% fall below the 2% yield um, on 10-year yield. And all of these things kick in at once and then VIX spikes. So question now is, is we knew some volatility was coming. Why does it all happen at once? Richard, can you bring us up to date with how stocks did elsewhere overnight? Yes, indeed. European markets fell sharply early in the day, seeing falls of 25 to 3%, but recovered on Wall Street's better performance and so paired losses to end half a percent down. The FTSE just closed just a quarter of a percent down to 6,196, and the German DAX actually rose a tick to 8,583. The benchmark 10-year U.S. long bond has lifted from its 12-month lows, trading at the moment at uh, 2.15, but uh, quite a little bit up uh, from its lows over the last week. Uh, What's been notable, Renita, is that Japan's taken a hit in this period, uh, similar to Europe, uh, but China and Hong Kong have held up well, barely down this week. Hong Kong ended yesterday down just 1% to 22,901. Uh, currency levels as we speak see the euro printing $1.28. The yen is at 106.3 yen to the dollar. Sterling's at $1.61 or $12.48 uh, Hong Kong dollars to the pound. The US dollar held stable through the falls of this week.
Uh, oil has shown standout falls recently, but rose a dollar last night to end um, 84.50, uh, and gold's trading at uh, 12.38 an ounce. Gold has barely moved through all this uh, movement in the markets, in the mm. energy markets. And uh, Asian markets are open now. The Nikkei is up three-tenths of a percent to 14,789. Australia's ASX index is up almost 1% to 5,291. And Seoul's Kospi also up one-fifth of a percent to 1,923. Well, the number of Americans filing new claims for jobless benefits fell to a 14-year low last week. The Labor Department said that initial claims for state unemployment benefits dropped 23,000 to a seasonally adjusted 264,000, which is its lowest level since the year 2000. Economist Gus Forscher at the P- at PNC Financial told the Associated Press that the big drop in new jobless claims is more evidence of a strengthening U.S. job market. Obviously, that's very good news. We've seen claims consistently below 300,000 for the past month or so. Uh, that's an indication that the job market is improving further and that, uh, you know, we're continuing to add jobs at a solid clip. With global growth, a collapse in inflation expectations, oil prices down and markets extremely volatile, what should the Fed be doing? Should it change its planned course? Well, St. Louis, uh, uh, St. Louis Fed Governor Bullard says that U.S. fundamentals remain strong and that he expects a 3% growth in the second half of this year and well into next year as, uh, next year as well. He also thinks that the market sell-off has some bullish effects, things like long-term lower rates and oil prices. However, however, I also think that uh, inflation expectations are dropping in the U.S., and that is something that a central bank cannot abide. Uh, we have to make sure that inflation and inflation expectations remain near our target. And for that reason, I think a reasonable response of the Fed in this situation would be to invoke the clause on the taper that said that the taper was data dependent and we could go on pause on the taper at this juncture and wait until uh, uh, we see how the data shakes out into December. Richard, what do you think? Do you think his however is warranted? I personally, I don't, but I'm, I don't have a vote on the Fed. And fortunately for two years, nor does Ballard, because he's just coming on to it. Um, Ballard's background is very much uh, an anti-deflation man. He likes to see a bit of inflation around. So his natural tendency is going to be, oh, hold on, we need to do something. Let's put more money into the market. But I don't think that's going to happen. You know, Janet Yellen is pretty well fixed on what she's saying. And even in the last week, she said the economy is going to take a long uh, as they are. So I don't see any change in policy. What's the difference between, you know, as you say, these uh, inflation-oriented people or, you know, the uh, anti-inflation man? Well, most of the, the, the argument really is in Europe where they are worried about deflation. And partly what happens with inflation is you get an inflation of assets. So people with capital tend to do well. If you have deflation, people with savings tend to do well because their money holds its value. Um, but usually it's the first guys who are in control. So there is a worry about deflation. I think it's overblown, mm. but there is a worry about deflation. The big thing, of course, is that with the oil prices coming down, we're going to get less inflation. So it'll be interesting to see if they start taking oil out of the figures again, as they often do when the oil price is going up and there's high inflation. So maybe a storm in a teacup. 
Well, I think it's too much to worry about now on the longer term. Clearly, people are gnawing over these particular issues at the moment. Okay, let's take a quick look at company earnings. Google's earnings per shares missed. They came in below estimates uh, at $6.35 per share, but uh, $6.53 is what analysts had expected. Here's Bloomberg's Julie Hyman. The revenue, excluding its traffic acquisition costs, that's usually how it reports it, uh, came in also very slightly uh, below estimates. $13.17 billion, $13.19 billion is what analysts had been anticipating there. Um, And the traffic acquisition costs overall were $3.35 billion. The company also said its cost per click fell uh, a lower amount than than estimated by 2%. The estimate was for a 3.3% loss there. Um, there There's also, we're going to, as we look into the statement, try and figure out if there was any effect from currency headwinds. Remember, that was part of the reason why uh, eBay's numbers were disappointing, and some analysts uh, predicted that could happen, that could be an an impact on Google as well. Forty-six percent of Google's revenue comes from the United States. The rest does not. So one could imagine that there would be some effect from the stronger dollar as well. Goldman Sachs also reported overnight its third quarter profit jumped 50%. The result powered Goldman's earnings per share to $4.57, easily topping the $3.21 average consensus of financial analysts. Now compare this to last year this time when the company reported earnings per share of just $2.88. Mattel, however, missed earnings estimates for the third quarter as sales of Barbie continued on a steep decline. And also its American Girl brand weighed on the company with third quarter sales falling 7% compared with a 6% rise in the second quarter. Richard, are Mattel's numbers particularly a cause for concern, especially considering the company does a lot of manufacturing here on the mainland, that is? It it does. I mean, obviously, it will impact uh, China. But I think Mattel is just one uh, company that gets supplies from China. The, The big point, I think, about Mattel is, of course, a lot of its earnings are coming from Barbie, which is an old, um, if you like, analog uh, brand um, and, analog. and others. And what you've got are kids now going for more digital stuff. Um, also, Mattel are getting a lot of competition from Lego, which is, you know, probably one of the last tactile things, but maybe parents think it's it's the one thing that they can have that isn't electronic in the uh, play, playroom. The analogue that works, that beats digital? Well, yes, and it's uh, Lego's been very clever in terms of branding things and coming up with new models, and they've really kept pace. Um, and I think Mattel's having a lot of trouble with, with the, the Barbie brand and, and the kind of the old image that it... it uh, shows anything else that we should be learning from the earnings stories uh, to uh, uh, sort of guide the way that we should be thinking about companies and markets over these this next quarter. Well, so far earnings have been uh, up uh, generally. I think in line with expectations. Um, Goldman surprised on the upside, so obviously fixed income commodities currency trading's done better. Also, I understand in the last two weeks, hedge funds, as you would expect, have been panicking and whipsaw being whipsawed, and that's great for trading desks as well. Um, Google disappointed slightly, um, uh, but the stock wasn't off that much. Okay, so Richard, we've had a lot of volatility, but people are still worried about bonds as a safe haven. That said, in Asia, the story is different, is it not? That's right. You know, after the cash markets, the bond markets are the biggest financial markets around. And remember, it was by trading bonds that the great Gatsby earned his incredible wealth in the early 20s. Um, They're still around. Uh, In Asia, we tend to be much more familiar with equity markets, but 
we've got a small bond market, um, but our relatively new history means it's actually quite a novel investment to many investors. And um, to explain why, we're on the line to Singapore where Donald Amstad, who's Director of Business Development and Asset Management, is waiting for us. Hello, Don, are you there? Um, uh, good morning, Richard. Good morning, uh, Renisha, and, uh, and good morning to your listeners as well. Hi, Don. Um, we're not going to talk necessarily about the markets day by day with you, but I'd just be interested to see how does Aberdeen look at the kind of volatility uh, that we've seen recently? Well, I think my equity colleagues at Aberdeen are, are probably humble enough to admit that they have no idea uh, whether equity markets are going to be up or down today, tomorrow, next month or next year. Um, and their view is that if you stick to investing in quality companies and you don't overpay to buy shares in those quality companies, then over the long term, you're going to be absolutely fine. Do you have the same strategy market. in the bond markets? Looking at the, well, the bond markets, bond prices really are, are driven more by macro factors. So my bond colleagues need to take a more top-down or, or macro approach to investing. And when they look at the bond markets in Asia, they find a couple of things that are quite interesting. First of all, they find great diversity. And that's a really good thing if you're trying to build portfolios with low correlations to other asset classes. Uh, secondly, they find plenty of quality. And where quality is lacking, then in some cases we find improving fundamentals such as in India. And thirdly, they find very compelling valuations. I mean, when you talk about 10-year treasuries, as I think you did uh, a couple of moments ago, Richard, I think they're yielding about 2.15% this morning. 10-year Germany yields about 0.75%. And compare that to, for example, 10-year Chinese government bonds that yield 3.75% or 10-year Indian bonds even at 8.3%, then Asian local currency government bonds are, are not expensive. And finally, when we look at U.S. dollar bonds issued by companies based in Asia, uh, again, we find some pretty compelling valuations. If you look at investment-grade names issued by uh, Asia, they tend to yield about 1% more than similarly rated, similar, similar duration U.S. names. And in high yield, the Asian premium is over 3%. So in this incredibly low-yielding world in which your listeners are trying to invest their hard-earned pensions and savings, the, the bond markets of Asia really do stand out. Don, what about uh, corporate bonds uh, in Asia? Uh, I, from what I understand, sort of the average yield uh, in China for corporate bonds is around about 5%. But there's a lot of worry, you know, with, you know, fraud and companies defaulting and uh, sort of you read something new in the news every single day. And uh, in India, on the other hand, uh, corporate bonds have really not historically, you know, there hasn't been a market for them. But that, I think, is changing and the yields right now are fairly high something like 9 to 10%. I think you've, you've got to be very careful to distinguish between bonds that are issued in US dollars and bonds that are issued in, in local currency. And uh, in India, uh, whereas 10-year Indian government bonds are yielding about 8.3, you can probably pick up corporate paper that's yielding uh, 9 or 10%. So in, in, indeed, very, very good, very attractive yields. Um, when it comes to dollar bonds, as I say, um, the both investment grade and high yield names uh, trade at substantial premiums to where uh, similarly rated U.S. names might trade. As you say, there have been uh, a lot of issues with specific companies. So, uh, and I'm 
I'm sure Richard would not be surprised to hear this from, from, from Aberdeen, but uh, we would say that a passive approach to investing in Asia is probably not a very good idea. You have to be selective and you have to do your homework. But if you do do your homework, there are some hidden gems out there. Um, uh, and uh, Don, just uh, very, very quickly before we go, any uh, markets that are hidden gems? India. India. So India's the one we're looking uh, at. With Modi uh, running the show in Delhi and Rajan running the Reserve Bank in, in Mumbai, um, and with, with commodity prices and oil prices falling, I think India is the standout bond market Great. to look at. Well, thanks very much, Don. I know Renita will be very pleased to hear that. That's um, Donald Amstead of Aberdeen Asset Management. Thank you, Richard. The time is now 8.19 a.m. and Apple says that its new electronic payment service will launch on Monday. It's uh, signed up another 500 banks to support a feature that competes with eBay's PayPal and other online systems. The company's CEO, Tim Cook, also said at an event yesterday in Cupertino that developers were beginning to design apps for its upcoming watch. And he talked about the remarkable success of the iPad. We've sold more iPads in the first four years than we've sold at any product in our history. In fact, we've sold over 225 million iPads around the world. To put this in a little more perspective, if you look at the top four by volume PC manufacturers, the number of sales that they've done for the last 12 months and compare that to iPad, iPad beats them all. And this is their entire PC lineup, every notebook, every desktop, every two-in-one, every all-in-one, every toaster refrigerator in one, all of them. My colleague Chris Oliver joins us now to talk more about what's happening with Apple in China. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. Apple's iPhone 6 officially goes on sale throughout mainland China today. Orders for about 20 million iPhone 6s were received during the first three days of online reservations. That was from Friday through Monday. So since Monday, that figure's probably jumped up a bit. Uh, we're joined on the phone now by Tracy Chai. She's research director at Gartner in Taipei. Good morning, Ms. Chai. So this, by all accounts, looks like a blockbuster debut for Apple in China. Will that help them build their market share for our, in the smartphone section? Uh, definitely, because um, people in China have been waiting for so long for larger size um, iPhone. Um, users in China, they just particularly uh, like larger size um, phones, smartphones. I think that their behavior for preference for larger size phones is much uh, stronger than other countries. So this was a big help for Apple uh, itself. So we have the, the three major carriers in China, China Mobile, China Unicom, and China Telecom are all carrying this device. Uh, who do you see as emerging as the major winner from this? Uh, I would think it would be China Mobile um, because, number one, he's the biggest uh, carrier with the biggest market share, and they just started collaborating with Apple to subsidize their phone since last year. So definitely this uh, will benefit uh, China Mobile phone um, carrier most. 
And one of the mysteries from my point of view here in Hong Kong is that this iPhone 6 is not cheap. It's a premium device. Yet the queues we're seeing around various Apple shops in Hong Kong are astonishing. Mainland buyers, uh, you know, queuing up to purchase uh, kind of gray market iPhone 6s. Uh, where is the power of the consumer in this? There seems to be a lot of uh, disposable income in China to uh, purchase a premium device. Yeah, it's um, not surprisingly, if you name all the luxury goods, that China is the number one country sell most of the luxury goods. There are so many rich people in the tier one, two cities. They just wanted to get the latest iPhone, uh, no matter how much it costs. So with the number, the huge number of those high-income people in China, and also they can image there's a long queue waiting for the latest line. In, in Hong Kong. Just, just, a quick, just a quick question. Uh, if, if that distribution channel opens in China, are we going to see the diminishment of the sort of gray market trade in Hong Kong with, for the iPhone? It would diminish. Um, then, so it's the same pattern as before. It was high at the beginning before it launched and then gradually just diminished um, by the time. One other uh, piece of Apple news is the debut of the the iPad Air 2 in uh, California uh, yesterday evening or last night. Uh, what do you make of that debut? So far, my impression is that there's been a bit of a lukewarm response from the tech community. There's a gradual improvement on the uh, processor and the weight and the sink, thickness, thinner and the lighter, um, uh, faster processors. But the overall, the the back is about the same as iPad Air. Okay. So, yeah, there's just a gradual improvement in terms of the overall features. Thank you, Ms. Chai. That's uh, Tracy Chai, the research director from Gartner in Taipei. Thank you. The Hong Kong Open, which began on Thursday, has endured a troubled couple of years, but there are signs that it could regain some of its former stature on European and Asian tours. Joining me to discuss this now is AFP Sports Editor Danny Hicks. Good morning, Danny. Good morning. So, Danny, is the Hong Kong Open back on the road to recovery? Well, there's signs. There's, there's green shoots. Let's not uh, let's not get carried away with ourselves. It has had a troubled couple of years, as you said. Uh, it kind of lost its place on the European Tour calendar last year and was sort of shunted back to December, which is at the beginning of the the kind of wraparound tour year, and, and uh, suffered with um, not being able to get a sponsor, a, a major sponsor, and so on. And, and the field was down, apart from you know Miguel Angel Jimenez, who's uh, won it four times and going for a fifth win this year. Um, but it's now um, got a better place on the calendar. It's, it's two weeks' time, uh, the, the European Tour's final four series of events begin in Shanghai. Um, and those are big money, and only the top 60 on the tour get into it. So those players around the cusp who are trying to get into those tournaments will, will want to turn up to Hong Kong, and indeed have turned up, people like Nicholas Colsarts, former Ryder Cup player, who's lying second overnight. Um, um, but there's a bit of a chicken and egg situation here, unfortunately. Without without the prize money that getting a major sponsor can uh, engender, you can't attract the big-name players. And without the big-name players, you can't attract a big sponsor. What's so the problem with, with Hong Kong, though, Danny? We seem to have a problem with sponsors for major sports events. We, we've lost the Cricket Sixes, yeah. for instance. The Rugby Sevens holds on because it's obviously a major event. But virtually uh, almost no other big sporting event manages to attract the cash. Yeah, we've, uh, we've had a... a, a, a 
tennis tournament recently, uh, inaugural women's uh, tournament has come back to Hong Kong after many years' absence. We're hoping that will grow. The problem is, I think we're being overtaken by by the the big rivals in in Asia, which are, which are basically Shanghai and Singapore. Singapore has the Formula One. Singapore has the WTA Tour Finals starting this weekend. Um, Shanghai has got these two mega golf events, which I'll be at in a couple of weeks' time, and hopefully reporting for you guys from. Um, and it, it seems, and they've got a Grand Prix as well. And it seems like um, you know Hong Kong's been left behind, and the, and the government doesn't seem to have the wherewithal to to promote sport to uh, attract people to Hong Kong. It just seems to think, well, Hong Kong is this this lovely place in, that everybody knows. So if you know we don't need to do anything, people will still come to Hong Kong. I'm afraid the world is moving on, and certainly the world of sport is moving on. And maybe the, it's time you know the government dipped its uh, hand into this mega events fund, which it never seems to spend any money from. So Danny. Some of our big sporting events. Yeah, so Danny, I mean, some of these other sporting events that, you know, Richard has mentioned, and certainly mm. the Hong Kong Open, I mean, these are big deals for Hong Kong. Historically, yeah. they've certainly drawn crowds. So why is, uh, sure, you mentioned that, you know, Singapore's got the Formula mm. One and there are other sporting events around the region, but why have numbers dropped here? Well, I, th- I think it's just the lack of, of support, as I said. And, and without that, you know, you don't get the big players. And the big, you need a Rory McIlroy or you need a Henrik Stenson or you need a Tiger Woods to show up to, to attract the, the fans in their numbers. And they will come from all over Asia to see those players. At the moment, you're relying on, the, on if you like, the golf, uh, the golf literati of Hong Kong to turn up. And they will, but they won't do it in the numbers that's needed to support a big tournament. But isn't it amazing you've got uh, Northern Ireland, which has produced three or four golfing mm. greats? Mm. with a population of less than Hong Kong, I think. Yes. Um, how do they do it? Well, I think it's just it's one of those things that's in the blood. I think another problem with Hong Kong is that accessibility to golf is, is very, very difficult. It's expensive. Uh, they're mainly private clubs. You go to somewhere like Northern Ireland, there's a, there's a public golf course. You can rock up and play at Royal Port Rush. That's going to host the Open in 2019. You can rock up and play there. Uh, it's a public golf course, basically. You can't do that in Hong Kong. And that therein lies a problem as well. But we've had some success, for instance, in cycling recently, wouldn't it be sensible maybe to focus on sports where we seem to have some green shoots coming through? Well, we've got a new velodrome at Chung Kwan O and cycling is being supported, but I think until we get this, this you know, Kai-Tak sports development actually finished and underway, we're not going to attract the big sporting events. And the Rugby Sevens desperately needs a bigger venue as well. Uh, Danny, what you said about, you know, the Tiger Woods and so forth not showing up here, uh, is that a function of the lack of sponsorship? Well, it is because, you know, without the big money and without being able to pay appearance money to these big name players, they simply won't show up. Their calendar is already packed. A lot of the big big players are playing in the... Uh, we've had the Grand Slam of golf this week. We've got the World Match Play going on in England. And you won't attract them away from that. Uh, those are big money events. Uh, for a 1.3 million prize pool sounds a lot of money in US dollars but actually when the winner's only picking up you know 150 200,000 uh, US dollars that's uh, peanuts compared to what they can earn elsewhere on the tour okay thank you so much that is Danny Hicks AFP sports editor our regular sports contributor Quick look at the numbers before we depart today. The Nikkei is open down almost 1% to 14,725. Australia's ASX index up uh, four-fifths of a percent to 5,286. And Seoul's Kospi down just slightly to 1,916. Richard, any parting thoughts for the week? Well, I think probably the frenetic moves uh, over of the week, and we may see things stabilised, but I can't see things moving up for a little while. Okay, so hopefully we'll all have a good weekend.
This is Money for Nothing, and I'm Renita Malhotra Hora, wrapping up for the week. A quick, quick look at the weather forecast for today. It'll be mainly fine, dry during the day with a maximum temperature of around 27 degrees. Moderate to fresh easterly winds. Currently, the temperature is 23 degrees Celsius, and the relative humidity is 68%. And now it's time for the half-hour news summary with Samantha Butler. Following a dawn operation, police have reopened to traffic the intersection of Nathan Road and Argyle Street in Mongkok, which had been occupied by pro-democracy protesters for almost three weeks. The Transport Department says both directions on Argyle Street are open between Portland and Fayun Streets. Nathan Road northbound is open, but protesters are still occupying the southbound lane. This morning's operation follows similar police action at other protest sites on Hong Kong Island. Our reporter Maggie Ho was there. Police moved in at 20 past 5, just as a senior police officer made an announcement to the media that the action is going to begin. And while he spoke, hundreds of protesters moved in from all four directions at the juncture of Nathan Road and Argyle Street and began the clearance. Uh, both directions of Argyle Street had reopened and um, the northbound lanes of Nathan Street also reopened, but then uh, police have yet to reopen southbound of Nathan Street because a group of protesters have decided to stay on the streets right now. So uh, they are having some sort of discussions with police officers to negotiate whether they would leave. Students pushing for greater democracy in Hong Kong have cautiously welcomed the prospect of formal talks with the government. But the Secretary General of the Federation of Students, Alex Chow, said the usefulness of the talks hinged on what the government brought to the table.